been a real joy to share in your fellowship today, and it's good to be back along tonight, and for all of you folk who have the courage to come out on a beautiful sunny uh, night like that, it's good to be together again around the scriptures. <clears throat> if you have a New Testament and want to follow the reading, it's in Revelation uh, chapter 2, and it's the first message, of course, to the churches in the book of the Revelation. And we'll take time to read chapter 2 of the Revelation and the message to the church in Ephesus. <clears throat> seven messages to the seven churches in the Revelation. And uh, tonight we'll look at the first one of these together. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Just so far, we trust God will bless the reading of his word to all of our hearts this evening. Let's just have a moment of prayer together and seek, seek God's blessing again. Thank you, gracious Father, for the privilege and opportunity of being gathered together this lovely Lord's Day evening. And in the presence of the Lord and around the inspired scriptures, the word of God, we give thanks for the faithful Holy Spirit who comes and makes the book live to our hearts and souls. And dear Lord, as we gather and seek uh, God's presence and the speaking voice, we pray that we might be enabled both to speak and to hear, to listen, to understand and to respond the Lord's word into our hearts. Grant us your grace. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his glory. Amen. The book of the Revelation isn't all that commonly read or studied, perhaps. Uh, difficult to get your head around and lots of things. But uh, at the beginning of the book, there are these messages to the seven churches that were in Asia Minor, Turkey as it is today, and right over on the East Coast, a group of churches almost all together. But they're pretty awesome, and the book of the Revelation is awesome in its own right. In fact, just opening the book of the Revelation, you know, it's like unfurling a vision into the future. It's a revelation, it's an unveiling. It's a vision and more than a vision. And the reality of it is supreme, it's majestic, it's God's word. In fact, there's a special blessing 
promised in the book itself to those who read the book. And not only read the book, but submit to its teaching and uh, live in the light. You imbibe the spirit, the majestic spirit of the book and live in the light of the Lord's near return. The book speaks of the second coming of Christ, the events that precede the Lord's return, events that accompany the Lord's return. And the book is majestic, powerful. I have to testify that the book of the Revelation, reading the book of the Revelation, we used to read the book, uh, the scriptures at home where we grew up together on a Sunday afternoon. After we'd been to church, and then we'd go out back again to church at, at night. But as a family, our parents weren't, you know, talking, weren't gifted in that way to talk to us about the gospel. But one thing they did, they brought us together on a Sunday afternoon and we read the scriptures. And I can remember in those days as a child reading this book of the Revelation. The awesomeness and the majestic power, the glory of the Revelation challenge my young heart we've got to allow the book to speak to us John writes about what he has seen the things that he has seen who haven't yet happened in their thousands of years into the future I saw he said saw a great white throne a great white throne has yet to take place yet John says I saw it down time itself and beyond to that great judgment. I saw a new heaven and the first and the new earth, first heaven, first earth that passed away. John says, I saw it. He's saying about John seeing the new Jerusalem, and he did. You know who John is, of course? He's the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote the letters as well. Now he's exiled. Persecuted to the Isle of Patmos during the Emperor Domitian, perhaps. And he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And God comes to him, <clears throat> unveils the future, reveals to him. <clears throat> of course, gives him <clears throat> these special messages to the churches. It's John to the seven churches. So it's to believers, it's to each of us. And I trust tonight that our studies are not, you know, focused on a church or ourselves as a church, but perhaps more on individual members of the body of Christ. So I think that's the truth that we get from John's message to the church in the Revelation. <clears throat> Book of the Revelation is challenging, powerful to believers. But you know, it's awesomely challenging to unbelievers. Talks about the book of life. We are always not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. He used to sing a song, Is your name written there? Is your name written on those pages bright and fair? No one will enter it, no one that defiles. No sinner, nobody does wrong things, loves their sins, will ever enter heaven. Can't happen. John said he was in the vision on the Lord's day and he had a vision of the Lord Jesus himself. 
the majesty, you read about that in the chapter 1. And uh, what John saw, who he saw, what he heard, so powerful that he collapsed as dead before it. The glory of the person of Christ. And then he tells us what he has seen. He says he saw seven, seven lampstands or seven candlesticks or golden and seven stars, and the stars were in his right, in the Lord's right hand. <clears throat> and of course, they have significance. The seven stars are the stars, the angels of the seven churches in the Lord's right hand. The seven golden candlesticks, or the seven golden lampstands. We could say that in Ephesus there was a golden lampstand church. You know, in China. They built a church back in 2009, I think it was. It was a huge church. And they called it the Golden Lampstand Church. What a great name for a church. And just last year, the authorities were so concerned about the advance of the church in China that the authorities moved in with explosives, machinery, and demolished, demolished the church. Reckoned that there were up to 50,000 believers that would gather around that church. Of course, what the authorities in China don't understand is that the building might be down, but the church still stands. The church is the people, body of Christ, the people of God. And uh, no philosophy like communism will defeat or frustrate the promises of Christ. I'll build my church. The powers of darkness. Nothing shall overcome the church of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now these words are to Ephesus. It was possibly Aquila and Priscilla who first took the gospel to the city of Ephesus. It's a large city. <clears throat> possibly not large in today's terms, but then it was huge. A quarter of a million people, they reckon, lived in, in Ephesus at the time. Paul, of course, went there. Ministered for two to three years. They had a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was a city of sin, idolatry. They were fanatical in their idolatry. The Ephesians believed that a big black rock outside the city actually fell from heaven. They built a huge temple around the worship of this rock. They called it Artemis or Diana. That temple became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So the Ephesians were fanatical idolaters now, looking at the situation hopeless spiritually speaking yet the gospel comes to Ephesus the spirit of God moves and you know, lots and lots of the Ephesian people were converted to Christ so much so that the trade in idols you know, dropped there was a huge recession old Artemis or Demetrius was it uh, complained because there was no trade any longer for his idols. So many people were converted to Christ. It was an astounding work, ministry of the Holy Spirit, that work in Ephesus. <clears throat> and now uh, John is writing to that church in Ephesus a number of years after its founding, a number of years after the Apostle Paul was there. And a couple of things to begin with. You know, it's addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus. 
and uh, of course it is the church in Ephesus itself. <clears throat> if you look at the first thing, is the church in Ephesus, quarter of a million people, there were no mega church buildings in those days, the Christians met in homes. And whenever other people were converted, another home would open to the gospel, and then more would be converted, and another home would, would open. So there were fellowships or assemblies or congregations, we call them churches today, spread across the city of Ephesus. Hundreds of them. But there was one church in Ephesus. Only one church. One church geographically. Uh, we have inherited denominational differences and all that. There were no denominational differences in those days. There was one church in the city of Ephesus. Many fellowships. The young man with us uh, just this past week and he grew up in a background where people felt he would be, you know, brought into just one fellowship, one group of Christian people. And he told us, he said, you know, I, I, I felt I couldn't be restricted and cut off from a huge section of the evangelical population in our country to be able to minister to them. And it's the body of Christ. It's the church. There are believers in different places. And so it's great to be together tonight all one in Christ. One church in Ephesus. And then the spirit of the church in Ephesus. Or the angel, rather. Uh, John is writing to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Who is the angel? People have thought about the angel for uh, many years. You know, was he the pastor of the church? Was he the minister of the church? Was he the leading elder of the church? And uh, there was really no structure in the church in Ephesus in those days. There was no leading elder. There was no pastor or minister. So who was, who was this angel uh, in Ephesus? The word angel could also be translated just simply as messenger. And I think it's almost better understood as not referring to any human person. But rather to the, the spirit of the church in Ephesus. Um, there is the Holy Spirit, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you and I, you and I have a spirit. We each have a spirit. The spirit resides, the heart or the spirit. <clears throat> and the church, the church has a spirit. You know when worship takes place is when God comes by his spirit speaking through his word and we respond to it and bring praise and worship and service to God. Now there, there's worship and there's ministry in the spirit. There's one church in a geographical location and there's the angel or the spirit of the church and John is writing to this church. Many, many uh, congregations but one, one church. Now, the message is from the one who walks among the seven golden candlesticks or golden lampstands, and it's from the Lord himself, the risen Christ. One is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's writing to you know, the born again, born from above, regenerated, 
redeemed believers in the church in Ephesus. It's no surprise how John begins his message to the church. The Lord's word. God comes to the church. Or the Lord comes to the church and he says these words, I know. Says them a couple of times, I know. That's frightening in one sense and yet it's also comforting. Because we need to remind ourselves that the Lord knows everything. We talk about the omniscience of God, that God knows absolutely everything. It's nothing beyond God's knowledge. And the Lord, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is also omniscient. He knows everything. Nothing hidden from God. The Lord knows absolutely everything. He knows everything about this church. And that's why he can bring a comprehensive message to the church, because he knows it. Inside out, back to front, upside down. Every influence that has ever been brought to bear upon the members of this church, the Lord knows it and understands it completely. Frightens us to think that the Lord knows everything and does know everything. But it's also a great comfort because sometimes as believers, we find ourselves in situations where we feel that nobody understands the situation. Nobody knows how difficult the situation is that I'm in. And I can't tell it, I can't explain it. But yet the comfort and knowledge is that the Lord says, I know it, I know it. And when the Lord knows our situation, not only does he know it, he doesn't just know it and take no knowledge of it. He knows it and acts upon it. Perhaps the toughest thing as a Christian when you're in difficulty is for the, to understand that the Lord knows about it. But then just to leave it in the Lord's hands. The Lord knows you know, we don't have to defend ourselves or work on it, leave it with the Lord and the Lord it may take a long time the act may never see the results in our lifetime but God has promised, the Lord has promised to execute justice and judgment, it's in his hands I know the Lord knows everything and so there are three things that the Lord wants to say to the church and we'll notice them just briefly tonight You know, there's, there's a commendation to this church. The Lord commends the church in Ephesus. The good things, positive things about the church. And it's an earned commendation. They don't get commended for not doing anything. They get commended for their works. And then secondly, it's like an appraisal, in a job situation, an appraisal comes around, the commendation, the positive usually goes first. And then secondly, there is a censure of the church. There are things that are not right to this church. And the Lord has to bring that censure to the church. In fact, it was pretty powerful. They'd lost or they'd left their first love. And the third thing, the Lord comes to specifically individual members of the church and gives them a commitment. Uh, or a promise. <coughs> And that is access, access to the tree of life. That is eternal life. We are promised the paradise of God. 
So three things. The first thing then is a commendation to to the church. And they're commended for what they have done. It's their actions, it's their deeds. <clears throat> it was the Lord's that was the Lord's work to turn them from idols, and now they get commended for their deeds or their hard work and their perseverance. And it's good when that is there to be commended. We ask ourselves what our labour, our endurance, our hard work uh, is all about. And it actually doesn't tell us what these deeds were or their work. But we deduce, we understand that they must be in relation to their faith, to their Christian faith, to their walking with God. It's not hard work away in their employment that has no connection with the church. It's their service for Christ. The situation in which they find themselves. And if you think about Ephesus and the, you know, the fanatics, the idolaters that they lived amongst. I, I think these works are in relation to the culture. And uh, just the atmosphere the time in which they lived to be a Christian in Ephesus we talk about a labour of love but it must have been a labour of love there was so much opposition the gospel was ridiculed in Ephesus Christians were laughed at in Ephesus it was tough being a Christian there as it's tougher being a Christian in the culture we find ourselves in today than it was in this country, 50, 100 years ago. It's harder being a Christian in Ephesus because they had to have honest business practices now. There had to be transparency in the way that they lived as Christians, as the Lord's people. They had to have respect for authority. Christians were known as going the second mile in social responsibility. They shouldered responsibilities within the community and culture in which they lived. And uh, there was honesty, transparency in a corrupt culture. Oh, you wonder sometimes you know, how some Christians survive in areas even in employment in which we find ourselves and when you live in a corrupt culture abroad in some areas the corruption is endemic and just being a Christian in Ephesus was not straightforward it was tough so they're commended for that and they're commended for something else as well. They're commended for their, their discernment. It tells us about these uh, false apostles, as they call themselves. Now, in the early church, these so-called false apostles, they call themselves super apostles. Uh, they crop up, they've cropped up in the Corinthian church. And here they are in the Ephesian church. And part of their commendation is that... Uh, you know, they've examined these super apostles, as they call themselves, and found them to be false. 
and didn't allow them to have uh, a role within the church in Ephesus. These were strong characters. They were educated. They possibly came with letters of authority. They felt that they had apostolic authority. They came to lay down the laws they saw within the church. They were harsh. They wanted to overpower the church. Especially humble believers. <coughs> and uh, in the church of Corinth, it caused all kinds of difficulty and problems. Bringing in splits in one city was this, another city was that. You know, the church in Ephesus, they discerned who these men were. I think we're greatly lacking today in discernment. Think about it, look at their deeds. You know, the, the, the Corinthian church were so blind that they couldn't see it. These super apostles, as they called themselves, had an affluent lifestyle and was completely opposite to the lifestyle of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul gives his credentials to the Corinthians, you know, I've been beaten and I've been in prison and I've been shipwrecked and I've been hungry and cold and all these kind of things. With these people, they had an easy life of it. They wanted to come into the church and make the church obey them and pay them for their services. It was an application of the spirit of the world into the church. And the Lord now comes to the Christians in Ephesus. I'm so glad you've seen it. You've kept them at bay. You haven't allowed them to have influence. Calls them wicked men. And they're not allowed into the church in Ephesus. That would obviously have brought, you know, pressure to the Christians in Ephesus. Opposition. And challenge and difficulty. Uh, we Christians don't like to oppose anybody in that sense, you know. Well, come. But the commendation of the Lord is here. You've been good, you've seen through these false teachers. Kept them out, kept them at bay. I don't know if you have it here, but most churches have a notice board outside, you know, and give the times of the service, and then we put all welcome on it. And, uh, well, good, everybody's welcome to come and hear the gospel. Not everybody's welcome when they come into the church to have a, a, a role in the church for which they are not qualified. The Lord commends them for that. They haven't given in. They haven't buckled under pressure. They haven't crumbled. And the Lord says, I'm glad about that. That's good. And the second thing was a word of censure. Th th things that haven't been just as good as that. <clears throat> the church was pure doctrinally. They kept false teachers at bay. And the Lord was pleased about them keeping that. And keeping the church pure. But now the censure. Yes, yes, but. <clears throat> and there are two very strong words used here. Not, uh, they, they say you have forsaken or abandoned or left your first love. That's, that's the first word. Have this against you. You've left your first love. 
And the second word is also very strong is fallen. You've fallen. Fallen from the spiritual standard that used to be the hallmark of the church in Ephesus. Wow. That would have, you know, almost hit them down here. It's great that you've recognized these false teachers and kept them out. But I'll tell you something, you know, you've, you've left, you're forsaken, abandoned your first love. That revival movement that was in the church in those days is gone. The state of the church is spiritual lukewarmness, perhaps even worse. Bless your first love. As we mentioned this morning, the prophet Jeremiah, you know, <clears throat> challenged the people of God in his days, you know, God said to them, you know, what fault have you found in me? What have I done wrong? That you have strayed from me? And the Lord can come to this church and say, you know, what have you done? What have I done that you have allowed your love to grow cold? And our lack of love for the Lord, our leaving our first love, that fire of the love for the person of Christ is an accusation against the Lord that he is not worthy of our love any longer our service. Yeah, the Spirit is grieved, but the Lord must be grieved as well for our lack <coughs> of love for him, demonstrated in our service for Christ. It's an accusation against the Lord. In fact, it's so serious that John tells him, you know, what you need to do about it is to repent. You know, change things. Go back to that situation where the fire of the Spirit was moving within the church and within the hearts of the people of God. Repent. Doctrinal purity and hard work patient endurance they were all good but when we read 1 Corinthians Paul's letter to the Corinthians you know, to the Corinthian church you can have all of these things but if we don't have love yeah sounding brass or noisy drum lots of noise but no reality no power nothing of the presence of God The Lord sees it as serious and he says, you know, unless you repent, I'll come and I'll take the lampstand away. I was in a church building in Edinburgh just recently and it's now a lighting centre, sell lamps in it. You walk into it and there's a beautiful plaque up to the first minister of this church. How he was committed to the gospel of Christ and his mission was winning souls for the soul. <laughs> Beautiful big church, and it's closed now. And the lampstand has been removed. The lampstand hasn't gone out, it's gone, gone elsewhere. The church is all over this nation. The lampstands have been removed. They've been removed to Latin America and Asia, Russia, all over the world. I'll remove them. <clears throat> I 
Then after the, after the censure, there's a, there's a censure about the lack of love in the church. We know when there's no love, we, we know that. We know ourselves and we don't experience our love. And yet the Lord comes again to them and says, but you know, this I have in your favour is that you hate the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You know, it's countercultural today, but God hates certain things. The Lord hates certain things. And it's good for the Christians in Ephesus that they hated certain things. They couldn't tolerate them. In fact, the Nicolaitans are worse even than the false teachers who threaten to wreck the church. Whatever they're doing, God hates their deeds. Doesn't say he hates them, but he hates what they do, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You've got to wonder, you know, what, what were they doing? Uh, they must have been despicable, sinful things that the Nicolaitans were doing in Ephesus. If you read the commentators on the book, uh, of Revelation, we find that especially the older commentators are very hesitant to talk about the Nicolaitans. Far few of them mention at all what they think the Nicolaitans were doing. And uh, I think there are very good reasons for that. When Paul wrote his letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 5, he, he talked about, you know, things that the disobedient do in secret. It's a shame to speak about them. Shameful even to talk about them. And that could possibly be the very deeds of the Nicolaitans. You don't mention them. Then do your soul good even to think about them. Deeds of the Nicolaitans. Shameful even to say. What did the gospel bring to Ephesus? The gospel brought uh, purity, and chastity, and morality, and marriage. Marriage as God understands it into the city of Ephesus. It seems that the Nicolaitans were, you know, people who were within, who were turning the gospel completely on its head. The gospel, of course, promises eternal life and says that nobody will get into heaven who defiles, who does that which is wrong, it's immoral against God, God's law. We've seen that the Nicolaitans were coming and they were, they were promising eternal life. But it was through, through enticement to sin that it was sensuous, immoral, sinful. The accommodation to the church is that the believers hate it. God hates it. The Lord hates it. It's the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You know, when you study scripture sometimes, you I was studying the book of Malachi recently and I thought to myself, you know, that this book, this prophecy of Malachi is written for the 21st century time of 
great lack of love within the people of God and all those kind of things. Yet when you read the Lord's word to the church in Ephesus, as though it's written for the 21st century, to the culture in which we find ourselves in. And the church is commended for hatred. And there are things that God hates. God hates that perversion of the gospel and the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We can leave it there, but if they allow the Nicolaitans to come in, the lampstand will be removed. And so there's a commendation to the church, commended for their, you know, their living out the Christian life in a pagan culture. They discern the false teachers. Good. Then the censure. You know, this church is not on fire like it once was. They've fallen, left their first love. But at least you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I also hate. And lastly, thirdly, and lastly, there's a, there's a commitment or there's a promise. The Lord gives a promise to you know, individual bona fide members of the church in Ephesus. Although the message is to the church, you know, God deals with individuals. And you and I stand as individuals before, before God. And I won't answer for you and you won't answer for me. We stand alone. And here's, here's the, the commitment. It's a promise. It's a promise of eternal life. It's access to the tree of life. To him who overcomes God says, here's the church, but to him or to her who overcomes, to the individual who overcomes. And you see, there were, there were two groups of people who wanted to overcome the church in Ephesus. The false teachers, they came. They wanted to be the boss of the church. They were overcoming the humble believers within the church. And then the Nicolaitans, they came in. They wanted to control the church the way they wanted it to go. Overcome the church. And the Lord comes to the church in Ephesus as the Lord comes to you and to me today. And uh, gives us commitment, this promise. It's dependable, sure. To him who overcomes, the one who overcomes. There's access to the tree of life access to the paradise of God there is eternal life and who are the overcomers and those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as personal saviour <coughs> who demonstrate who are saved and demonstrate that salvation by somebody described as their savedness you know, the fruit of the spirit in their hearts and lives <coughs> As they walk with God on a daily basis. To him he overcomes. Now those today who disregard what the scripture says about morality, the Christian life. This is God's word. God has breathed it. God has breathed himself into it. It will never change. No matter what culture we find ourselves in, there is no accommodation for 
either the false teaching or the deeds of the Nicolaitans within the church. And as to the individual believer, the humble follower of the Lord, the one who on a daily basis reads God's word and seeks God's grace and presence and guidance and help, the end of the day comes and acknowledges God and gives God thanks and praise for that. Lives in a corrupt society in what we call a godly way. It's tough. And possibly will become tougher as the church is mocked and ridiculed and the pagan growing strongly pagan environment in which you and I and our families live in this day and how we need the presence and the grace of God to overcome overcome through the sanctifying power of the risen Christ the work of God's gracious Holy Spirit to deliver us from false teaching or sinful living so that we're ready when the Lord comes or calls to be in his presence. So revelation is awesome. You know. I suppose the important thing is to understand and to know and be assured that our names are written in the book of life. And that we are personal overcomers. And the Lord will give us access to the tree of life. And we will be in the paradise of God. The fall is paradise lost. Distance from God. In Christ, paradise is regained. We have access to the tree of life. And we have the promise that we will be with him. And with him for forever. 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 I, John the Lord's voice to the seven churches and this is John's message this is the Lord's word to the church in Ephesus we trust the Lord will bless these thoughts to all of our hearts this evening let's join in singing our closing <clears throat> hymn which is right here it's <clears throat> I hear the sound of rustling and we love we love to sense the movement of the spirit of God <clears throat> our situation and we just trust and pray that we might experience that in the coming days. Let's stand together and sing this closing hymn.